Hey guys, what's up? This is Andy Frisella here. You're listening to Big MX Radio, but when you're done with this episode, come check out the MFCEO project, mfceo.com. I got all your motivation. I've got everything you need to know about running your brand. I've got everything you need to know about getting shit done, and we can do it together. Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast brought to you by Medterra CBD. You can go to medterracbd.com right now and save 15% every time you lock in discount code BIGMXRADIO15 and you can save that every single time you shop with BIGMXRADIO15. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With me on the line, an absolute legend in the sport of motocross. He competed in the sport and basically watched it grow, has continued to watch it grow since its inception in the earliest, uh, in the late, late 70s, or early 60s, late 70s, and in through currently continuing to race and, uh, and still love the sport and be a huge contributor to the history of it. He's an AMA Hall of Famer and a seven-time AMA champion, and uh, also three times, or... or 17 times was in the top three in points in the championships that he raced in. If you don't know who I'm talking about already, it's got to be the big number three, Jeff Ward. How's it going, Jeff? I'm doing good. How you doing? Not bad. How was that intro? That was good. There was a lot of stuff <laughs> I didn't know about. Not Fair that, enough. I forgot about, I guess. Well, you, you've been in it for so long, man. Like the, We also left off, uh, I, I believe, if, you're, if I'm not mistaken, you're undefeated as a member of, uh, of Team USA from all across the nations, correct? Yeah, yeah, seven times. Well, actually, it was nine because we ran twice, uh, 83 and 84. And, uh, right, with the trophy donations. 250 trophy donations. So we won that, and then the next week we won the 500s of the year after the same thing. So there were nine times I was over there, you know, competing for USA and I won all nine times, so that was uh, that was a cool uh, cool accomplishment, and uh, I never had to feel the feeling of defeat over there with the whole country on your back. It was always a good memory, so that was a big plus in my career. No doubt. Maybe uh, maybe we need to have uh, you you give uh, Team USA a bit of a pep talk before every uh, season's race uh, because they've been struggling with that as of late. But uh, maybe we get to get to that another time. But uh, what's new and exciting in yeah. uh, in Jeff Ward's life, man? Um, well, just you know, doing a lot of fun, trying to do some fun stuff, um, racing some mountain bikes, and doing some uh, you know cycling, and and then working with, of course, you know, Matera. Um, projects with them and and um then we also have uh the sturgis motocross track that we're putting in up in uh, sturgis with mickey diamond and brian manley and uh, matt mccall um doug henry was there he's helping out and kind of getting david bailey involved a little bit trying to help out with some stuff and just trying to make a track up there that's fun for that region of the country which doesn't have a lot um, but has a ton of potential so um, and other than that, just, you know, my kids are growing up. My daughter just got home Friday from college, uh, from Ohio. So, um, she's here for the summer. And then tonight I'm doing a mountain bike race. So just, uh, and, you know, flat track trying to pop in that down again and keep riding enough to feel comfortable, but not too fast. I'm not too fast, but I just as long as I feel comfortable and have fun. That's been the kind of the name of the game lately. No kidding. Keeping yourself more than busy, and uh, I can also come to understand oh, one of your sons got married in the last little while. Uh, balancing that in your schedule as well um, is, is that something that you've always sort of done? You always take on quite a bit, like you, as far as like uh, just keeping your your hands in so many different projects and stuff like that. You seem like a kind of guy who likes to uh, have a busy schedule. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, 
seems like I've been that way since I was a kid, just with traveling and racing and every weekend we were, you know, doing something and racing. So it's still kind of in my blood to keep doing that. So I, I still, you know, I mean, it's just a different kind of busy, which means just, you know, I'm kind of perfectionist trying to prepare myself for, for whatever I'm doing and, and putting in more effort than anybody else. And, you know, if I'm racing, it's, it's just, you know, it's hard to do. And at this uh, stage, it's become trying to have more fun at it than expecting results, which is a hard mentality to change yeah. throughout my career. So, um, even if it's car racing or doing something, I, I just, I, I'd like to have more fun at it now that I, you know, to where when I'm done, I still kind of enjoy the day. Even if I did do well to where before, that was not, you know, fun for me. It was like concentrate, just trying to figure out and do better the next time out. And till then, you were just still in a funk mode. So, um, yeah, so now it's just a little bit more for fun. But I still like to at least put the effort in, whether it's mountain biking for a race or a cycling race or whatever it is to be somewhat prepared so that I can be competitive and just not struggle. You know, that's never fun when you're struggling. So, but you know, I, I like doing stuff. You know, my daughter goes to college on a soccer scholarship and, and learning business. And I love watching those games and try to get back there. They have them on TV here too. So I, I can watch them on TV, but, um, uh, just, always been involved in my kids life and whatever they've been doing and now that they've kind of grown up it's there's actually more time to to work on things that you know this project with the motocross stuff and they'll pull me away a little bit more but i don't have to be here so so much or you know because the kids kind of have their own lives so it's changed for sure that they do and actually uh, i had the the, uh, the pleasure of uh, chasing both your sons around uh, milestone uh, about a year ago my last day in in california both of them were out there and uh, i i got to say really really nice kids very well spoken uh, great to talk to and uh, pretty fast as well like those kids those kids uh, uh, <clears throat> maybe didn't follow in dad's footsteps becoming uh, ama uh, champion and, and hall of famer but uh, they know their way around uh, two wheels as well yeah, they've raced. I'm sure. I don't know if it was Alon or Ayrton or Twin. Um, Both Alon of them were just there. kind of rides for fun. He was, yeah, he was probably on my 450 or something, yep. and it, it sprung for like 180 pounds. And when he was one 130 pounds or something, but um, then my other son Ayrton, who rides, uh, I mean, he's an A class rider. I mean, he was B at Loretta's, and then he was the A at Mammoth, and um, you know, he has a full time job. He's working with the business. My father in law, so. They kind of, you know, just, they ride well. Ayrton's really, you know, he's fast. He just doesn't put in the time. He's racing tonight, actually, on mountain bikes. He's really good at mountain bike racing. And so, um, but yeah, it just, it was, it's a tough road. I mean, you know, if you're not winning everything in the 60s and 5s and 70s or the, eight, you know, 85 class and super mini when you're, you're kids, it, it's like, it's hard to make a career, you know, out of it. And he was just never, you know, at that level, I mean, he was in, I mean, I mean, my older son, Brandon, is in the army. I mean, he raced with Baggett and Tomac and, right. you know, and, and qualified for Loretta's and he was, you know, he'd be up there in the top six, seven and rode for Honda of Houston at one point. And, um, and then he's when he moved to the big bikes. Yeah. He was a little bit on a small statue like I was, but, um, just was, you know, there comes a switch to where when, you know, you go in the first turn and you need to be the, the last one to shut off and, he was usually the first one. So, um, 
it just you know he was always cautious you know and didn't get hurt much which was great you know I loved that part of it but um, it's just the next level that it, you know only few people that get to and you know he was cool with it and um, you know they still are great riders and still go run mammoth on whatever days they want or local races and still be competitive and have fun so um, I don't think they felt any pressure really having to live up to what I did because <clears throat> really they never really saw me race you know they were all bored Fair after yep. I was done most of them saw me race race indie cars so um, they never really saw me until I raced supermoto and you know when I was 41 or two whatever so um, but they were already going you know to the mini bike tracks and, and riding and everything so really there was there was an, uh, no expectations like they followed me you know when I was a kid at the motocross and then felt like it so it worked out good I'm happy with it <laughs> absolutely being able to share the sport of motocross with uh, with your boys uh, something that my dad introduced me to and uh, it's it's just it's something that uh, it can, you can stay with for a really long period of time. There, there's no sort of aging out of motocross, so to speak. Especially when you, you consider like the world vets and stuff like that. There are events and there's classes for uh, as long as you want to continue twisting the throttle. Uh, you can go do that, and it's awesome to see that you've connected with your sons that way. Um, you yourself seem to be somebody who has always appreciate the work that comes with, uh, for instance, uh, becoming that guy that shuts off last or the guy who's fittest uh, on the line. And I think you've always prided yourself on that. What is, is it for you that's always sort of, is that something that you've always sort of uh, have, did someone instill that in you? Is that something you've come back, come by sort of naturally uh, through your, the youngest days and stuff like that? Like uh, you seem to really enjoy the work side of things uh, as far as whether it be your physical fitness or the relationships that you've built over the years with different companies. What is it about that, that love of the work for you? Um, I don't know. I mean, when I started off, you know, mini bikes, I mean, I was winning and, and doing well, but, um, you know, when I moved up to the bigger bikes, I got smoked. Um, I used to get lapped by guys I used to beat at mini bikes. And I, I just think it's a drive that, I mean, I don't know if it can be taught in you or not because I was winning on mini bikes for a reason. It wasn't because somebody was telling me that I had to do this or that or whatever. I just think some athletes have that drive of just giving it their all and not thinking of, you know, um, why they're not getting there or whatever. They just keep giving it their all. And, um, so yeah, when I moved into the bigger bikes, I got lapped and I still was totally committed to, you know, figuring out the problem with, which was pretty much my size and weight. Um, so I was just kind of waiting until that caught up a little bit. And, um, and then when you start getting beat, then you start kind of finding, you know, you figure out the reasons why is because they're stronger the races are longer and then it was just okay like what do i got to do to get to that level and you know i would just do it and then it would be like okay i want to be stronger than the next guy and um it would just it's just something that's just you know every time i go to the line now whether you know even if i when i showed up for triathlons on these weekends off my mentality was like i'm I'm gonna win this thing even though (laughs) i'm racing again these professors that do it for a living yeah. It's just my mindset of like I'm giving it a hundred percent and my hundred percent is gonna win this. Of course, you know, it never happened. But if I didn't do that, I would never get a hundred percent out of myself if I just settled like, okay, I'm just gonna do the best I can kind of type thing and I'm not gonna beat these guys. But you, you just don't set yourself up for the energy and the, the I don't know, the determination that you need to win races and um just sometimes that's you know, 
thought the best way to do a race, you know, those type of races, but when it was to motocross, that, you know, I never said that I wanted just to get on the podium because that's just settling for third. That means you're never going to win. Yeah. So my, no matter if I had an injury or a broken ankle, my mentality leaving the line is I'm going to win this race because if I give it that effort, yeah, I might, I, I probably will get third with that effort because of the broken ankle. But if I said I wanted to get on the podium, then I'm not going to get on the podium because the guy behind me is going to want it more than me. So, um, it's just a way of thinking of the way I am when I race anything. It's, it's just a hundred percent and, um, with whatever circumstances you have is all you can do. So still do that with the flat track, you know, going there. I still take off the line or whatever, go and think I'm going to be the fastest guy and give it everything I, uh, I have, but I haven't been. But if I went out there just to, feel like oh, I'll just you know go ride around and I won't even be I wouldn't even be that fast so it's just the mentality I've kind of grown up with yeah definitely something and it's it's uh you've gotten a lot of success from it and I think we'll also talk a little bit about the adversity that you faced throughout that career I think a lot of people look at a hall of fame career and uh assume that it was nothing but uh just pure domination sunshine and rainbows but I think we'll well once as we continue to talk we'll we'll really sort of uncover uh sort of some of the, where that grit that you currently still uh draw upon is uh, was cultivated um but before we get to that uh I know you've been working really close Closely with Medterra CBD um, at, the, at the tender age of uh, I think next month uh, you turn 58 years old like how, how first of all how did that sort of yeah. come about where you're talking uh, with those guys and working together and some of the projects that you've worked with and uh, so like like how do you how have the products been uh, beneficial to you and uh, kind of talk a little bit about working with those guys yeah um, you know I mean this whole fat kind of took off I mean it's been a known fact for years that you know um, the CBD and, and helps inflammation and that plant, you know, um, it helps you in some, I was just never educated on it and never just really went in that direction. And a friend of mine, Johnny Louch, he owns the W gym, um, and mountain bikes with us. And, um, he ran across them through some other channels and said, here, you got to try this. That's great. And it was the lotion for your legs and cycling. And, you know, so I've had a bunch of other companies give me stuff and, um, we did the ram, you know, because we did the ram years ago, a couple of years ago across the United States with Mickey and David and Doug, and so we we tried. All, I'm trying all bunch of products to see what works and what I feel works or what doesn't work, and I started using the cream and really started feeling some benefits from it. Even while I was cycling a little bit, it almost had like a a relapse, like you just put it on and you feel a little sensation in the legs and just seemed to be working for me. So I just got a little more knowledge about it and went down and I knew Malcolm McCaffey who was um, kind of involved with them too and um, so went down there and met with them Rico who um, who runs a lot of the programs that are put together even the one I'm involved in and right. started getting the oil and taking it uh, probably last November and you know I mean my body's beat up and swelling inflammation my ankles are sore and um, I have bad headaches two or three or four a month that are really bad um so I started taking it and I started, you know, feeling my headaches were minimized. Um, I rarely get one now that puts me down for the day. Um, so I'll, you know, I just became a believer. And so when I started talking to him and, you know, I wanted to do, I stood in my mountain bike races and stuff for monster and other stuff. And then this flat track stuff came out with TT. And then I just talked to them about, you know, here's what I want to do. And they're like, man, you fit into our, demographics perfect with somebody that's you know 
an athlete of your caliber that's still going and benefiting from something that, you know, that we believe in and, and has been, you know, a, a proven fact. And so, yeah, I just kind of, kind of snowballed from there and they're just a great group of guys and Jay that uh, runs the company and, um, yeah, I'm down there almost every day because Jim's down there and, and, um, uh, keep in touch with them. So it's just a product that, that is just coming to the forefront now that I think it's great that just know everybody that has some problems and, pain in their body that um this will help them absolutely and uh and education with this is a huge key i think just the the biggest uh sort of hurdle for for cbd is just the the lack of uh information and or not lack of information a lot of education out there people just don't know what it is or how they can benefit and uh, i actually did a podcast with jay and for those who are listening haven't heard that one yet you can go back and listen to it but for the most part uh my biggest benefits from it is the 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 uh, decrease in inflammation in my body and uh, just I'm getting so much better sleep and that's what's basically translating yeah. into uh, better overall uh, productivity. I think you've probably experienced the same. Yeah, I think that's the biggest factor in, you know, in CBD and in, in, in general. Um, I, I think it also gives a little tranquility, kind of a calmness maybe or, um, you know, and that's probably got to do with the body settling down from not as much inflammation, having to process things and push things and um, when your body feels better your mind feels better you know so it's just kind of an all kind of snowball effect and a lot of things and yeah it's been working great and um, the is just a great company and the direction they're taking it in and the people they're helping out and the people that are coming on board it's just a fun time and you know the industry I think and yeah it's just a misconception on the THD where it has zero and the right. plant and the way the laws are it's not almost make it look as like when they had the lead law for the mini bikes when they stopped selling mini bikes because there's lead in them you know that's tied up into the the law with about miners being able to you know with the lead deal and they weren't selling bikes because of that you know it's like it's just the the red tape that it's caught up in and i think it's the same thing with cbd it's just put into a uh, category that it, it shouldn't be in um and once that gets all figured out and i think it'll be It'll be off and running, and uh, more people will, will, you know, try it and see the benefits. But um, definitely, as an athlete that's done my time with training, and, and I haven't stopped, um, you really feel the benefits. I think more at my age than you would at somebody that's in their twenties, because um, I have more to feel <laughs> than, <laughs> than they do. You know, I know my twenty. I know my twenties. I could take stuff and. Uh, did it help my performance? I don't know. Hopefully, or did it, you know, do this? You just, at a young age, you can push through. You just, there's the, yeah. you know, the recovery is zero, you know, overnight. Exactly. When you get my age and you do a long, you know, I did a 12 hour cycling event, time trial back in November. And, um, you know, that should have put me down for day, you know, a week. And I was back out cycling, you know, two days later. And, um, there's just no way I could, I don't think I could do that without take with, you know, without the CBD and, Amongst some other stuff, I tell you know that helps out my program. I eat healthy with and and diet and stuff. So um, yeah, big believer and, and super excited to be you know part of their family. Oh, absolutely! I think uh, years from now, people will feel awfully silly uh, at least not giving uh, CBD uh, a try or waiting as long as they have to try it. I think it's, it's a huge benefit to me as far as uh, even uh, get, as you said 
uh, when I was 18 years old, I popped my right shoulder, my left shoulder out five times and uh, usually was able to come back to ride my dirt bike within about a week. Uh, I'm now 30 and uh, that same shoulder uh, popped out again after 10 years of it being uh, rather secure and uh, it took me four weeks to get back on the motorcycle uh, and it would have been a whole lot longer yeah. without uh, the topical cream that I've been rubbing on there on a regular basis and um, that's basically all I have to say about it. I, I love the product. I want other people to try it and uh, if they use the discount code, they can even save money when they do. So uh, I'm pumped about it. Yeah, good. Yeah. Should so be. let's... Yeah, definitely a, uh, a help. Absolutely. So let's jump into, let's let's jump in the time machine a little bit. Let's spin the clocks back. Maybe not as far back as doing a long wheelie on a on a uh, on a, a mini bike in on any Sunday. Maybe not all the way back to uh dominating the mini bike uh races in the uh, in the in the 70s or the you know throughout the 70s. Let's go back to uh the the beginning or like the Basically, the, the earliest years of your professional career, as you said, moving from the mini bikes to the big bikes, um, like for a seven-time champion in the sport of motocross, most would assume that as soon as you turned pro, uh, it was just instant success, like uh, whether it was Golden State Series, whether it was uh, Winter Ams right. or, uh, or going to uh, AMA, AMA Nationals. It was just an instant success, but the reality is that uh, you had to compete in 13 different series over the span of six years uh, to get your first title, and, uh, and it was at least four full seasons before you would see your first, uh, first race win, which was uh, Lake Whitney in April of, uh, of, of, um, of 82. Talk a little bit about yeah. the journey to that win and uh, maybe anything you remember from that particular day. Yeah, I mean... From the mini bikes, I moved to 125, which was locally because I had about a year on the 125s before I hit the nationals, I believe, or close to that. Um, you know, I used to race Myerskopf and Mike Brown, and I don't know who Albert else was, but Myerskopf and I, you know, we beat each other 50% of the time. You know, it was pretty close battles, and uh, it was tougher for me because I was on a XR four stroke, and he was on a you know a YZ for a while and then I got into a Suzuki and then I was more competitive but once I moved up I was just super small I mean my when I was 16 my driver's license I was 4'11 and 95 pounds so um, it's not very big to be riding a 125 and they were tall and you know I'd race Saddleback Local and Myerskopf would lap me in a 30 minute moto and I would you know I wouldn't even get top 10 I don't think um, and then I'd just keep you know plugging away and practicing and just got a little better a little better and so then I was with FMF Suzuki at the time because that's why I rode my last year on mini bikes was on Suzuki and uh, so I you know went to the first national up at Hangtown and hole shotted both motos actually uh, but I got lapped both motos by the leaders um, and then uh, but it gave me kind of it was kind of an eye opener but um, it was a rough sand track which uh, at Hangtown was at Plymouth before they went over to the the other track and. Uh, I don't ride sand, never rode sand. Um, so I was kind of out of my element, but I felt like I was, I rode good. But then we went to escape country the next week was pretty much where I practiced. And, uh, uh, I think I whole shot it there and led a long time and went like three, four or something for third overall, fourth overall, something like that. So right. that kind of got me sparked a little bit on, uh, you know, running up front and then, the next race, I don't really remember how well it went, but I was—I mean, I ran up the top five and ten most of the time, and then Yamaha halfway through the year 
picked me up saying they wanted to hire me for the next year, you know, for the next year. And I wasn't getting paid anything by Suzuki. I think uh, we were just putting the bike in a truck of Kent Howerton's or something and showing up at the track and on a stock bike. It wasn't even, you know, it's not a factory bike. It's just a production bike. Um, and then I had a production Yamaha, which was worse than the production Suzuki. <laughs> so my results were even worse. And it was just, you know, the, the motos were 40 minutes long plus two. So they were long motos and um, just everything was going against me. And then, but I was doing decent. And then Yamaha gave me Brock's OW uh, 125 for the last two nationals. Because um, Brock was uh, in a tight battle with Barnett, I think. And maybe somebody else so they wanted kind of somebody else to maybe get up there and they knew I could hold shot so at least if I was on a better bike maybe I could stay up longer and block somebody or who knows what the plan was but um, the first moto I raced I hold shot and led the whole moto till two turns from the end and Lapper took me over off off the corner and I think it was Galen Mosier on a Cowie that year right. won the moto so I almost won the moto but first time out on this bike and so, you know, then the second mode, I whole shot it again, and I, I led the whole time, and then the throttle stuck or something off this giant jump, and I cartwheeled and DNS, and then went to the next week and, and um, led the motor down there in the sand to try to help Brock, you know, beat Barnett. And so at the end of the year, you know, they were stoked that I was going to, you know, move on. And um, But, like, November, they came and said I wasn't going to get work spikes or something, and I was like, I can't race a production Yamaha. I was getting worse. And I was on the Suzuki's, and so I was bummed out, and I was up at Escape Country, the, the race that national we were at, and Jimmy Weinert was there, and he came up and asked, what's going on? I said, nothing right now. I just thought I was going to sign with Yamaha, but I'm not signing with Yamaha. And he's like, no way. And he's a pretty good friend of mine because I wrote him a lot, and he's all like, oh, that sucks. And I said, yeah, I don't know. Let's see what happens. And then he left, and then that night I got a call from Cowie because he went back to Cowie and told him, but I wasn't racing for Yamaha, and I signed, went down the next day and signed with Cowie. So um, that's kind of started with them, and then their bike wasn't that good. So it was still a struggle, but um, my first year, I think with them, I ended up, well, my first year in the National, I ended up seventh overall in the championship with the Yamaha and Suzuki, and then the next year with Cowie, I was around three or four or something, and then the, the bikes just weren't, you know, that good in 81, really. Um so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't setting the world on fire. But then again, I was racing against some really fast guys with Brock and and Barnett and shoot, there's two or three other guys in there that were that were really good caliber national guys. And yeah, and in '82, like you said, my first uh, first win was at um, Whitney. Um, I can't remember the circumstances. I remember well the first one. I think I. Second behind Barnett or something, and then the second motor Barnett went down the first turn. Um, There's a picture of him with his, you know, his bar, mm-hmm. like at a 45 degree angle with no goggles on, and, or or the, not the throttle, the clutch side, still clutching it, you know. And I think he still almost caught me, but uh, I was able to win the second motor and get the overall, you know. So. Um, that was kind of a big deal. And I, did, I won another race at Washougal that year. I got an overall again in Washougal. So I got two that year, and the bike was getting better in 82. Um, so I was getting them more confident. And then in 83, they came out with a really good 125 that um, I think was competitive with the Suzuki and Honda. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I only won one national that year, but I was in the points hunt with Osho until the end. 
you know, we lost by like five points. So that was the kind of the opening thing, but I started training a lot harder, um, just riding more, going to the gym, and I got uh, hooked up with Jeff Spencer at the end of 83. Um, that definitely set my career on its on the road upward just on getting the program that I needed to get done and the strength training that I needed for being so small mm-hmm. and then in 84 yeah just the bike was better than 83 and you know I won 8 out of 10 nationals I think that year so that was kind of the the start of it it took a long time I mean I mean Kawasaki stuck with me when I was still kind of learning the ropes and you know, still had the potential, and, and then there were times where I stuck with them when the bike wasn't that good, you know, because it wasn't a lot of times, <laughs> way too much, it wasn't, you know, it didn't handle good, we kept trying, you know, the, came with the dog bone, they called it, the linkage, it'd break all the time, um, you know, it's an era where the factory bikes were kind of, you know, we were kind of guinea pigs a little bit, just trying stuff that they didn't know if it worked or not, and we were the test riders back then, so... Um, just a different era than now, but um, it just goes back to my, you know, I'm just wanting to be better every time I go out, and just I just never gave up. You know, could have been easily enough given up. It wasn't that I wasn't hurt through those years either. I got hurt too, you know, and there's a lot of times that could have easily just got pushed aside, but I just wasn't gonna let that happen. So, um, yeah, then from '84 on, it was uh, all pretty good. No doubt, and if you look at your results uh, as your career progresses, you really start to see the consistency start to uh, really gain a lot of momentum uh, for you in through the uh, the '83 into '84, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that '84 uh, championship season in a second here. But I just like thinking about your career a little bit in all the way from your earliest days on two wheels, like literally in the infancy of motocross—not even professional motocross, but just motocross in general in North America—and um, the the air-cooled, complete, and you were on four strokes for a bit, and you're on two strokes for a bit, all the way to the mm-hmm. end of your career in 1992, where um, a lot would argue that um, that's basically the full evolution of the two-stroke motocross bike, the, the final bike that you were racing in 92. Uh, Kawasaki's uh, 500 really didn't change until they stopped making it in 2001. Um, what was, like, maybe touch on that a little bit, the fact that you literally... Uh, watched the sport and the bikes uh, completely evolve from from basically like the, like when you first started there wasn't even supercross wasn't even a thing yet to uh, by the time you're out of there uh, supercross triples existed and they're like the camel super like the whole thing uh, pretty amazing to see right. just how far things came and like literally your bikes changing for you probably month to month if not year to year. Yeah, no, we were allowed to change any parts we wanted. So, uh, yeah, from, yeah, the mini bike stage from those little guys had taco mini bikes with, you know, lawnmower motors and, um, you know, no suspension. So they made little mini bikes kind of replicating the Elsinores and stuff that had some good suspension. And, you know, so we weren't jumping anything. It was more flat track TT, uh, scrambles type, you know, then we, I don't know what point and we started racing on the bigger tracks at a certain age you know in 74 fought three I don't know so everything just yeah everything just was every time something changed I was in the middle of it um yeah from you know like the air cold to water cold to two shocks to single shock to upside down forks to regular forks to you know just everything um 
evolving disc brakes from drum brakes. Um, yeah, we just had stuff thrown at us in the middle of the season. You know, the factory would be over there developing and engineering something they thought would be better, and it would show up, you know, at the factory, and we'd put it on our bikes and test it. If we liked it, we raced it that weekend. If we didn't, I mean, I had triple clamps that we, we made that were better on the 500. I snapped two of those off on the 500 test, and one on the Carlsbad downhill off the launch, and I landed, and the fork snapped off. And then one time at Saddleback, same thing, down some downhill land and the fork snapped off. So, um, yeah, when you got stuff, you were a little bit leery of what was going to happen after, you know, all this stuff would break on you. Like I said, the Unitrack, you know, the first times they came out that, that thing would snap 50% of the time testing, you know, so that was never a good feeling either when you're going wide open, getting ready to launch off some big jump and you hope it didn't snap when you landed. So... Yeah, just a different time, you know. I mean, now the bikes are so solid. There's very little between them, and there's very little they could do during the year. Um, and they don't change very much, you know. Each year, there's just a small change. I mean, they may change their frame, but, I mean, the geometry or something, but um, it's usually all pretty close. So, um, yeah, it was just a pretty tricky time. Um, fun, though, you know, because I was kind of the first, mini bike protege coming up because really like you said motocross just kind of all of a sudden just dropped its lot you know in the lap of the euros coming over and all of a sudden there's a motocross series and you know you got marty smith and hannah and all of a sudden these guys are your heroes right away that nobody ever heard of until you know these series got made supercross and then all of a sudden now there's this mini bike thing going on that all of a sudden now you know younger kids are just coming up you know, around 79, 80 that were on mini bikes that are moving into, you know, maybe fight for some race wins with, you know, Marty Smith and Ken Howerton and Billy Grossi and all these guys that you kind of made American motocross at the beginning. And so I was the first myself and probably Myerskopf, the first really mini bike, you know, uh, sensations coming up to try to take over, you know, the motocross world. And, Brian did it a lot quicker than I did. Um, he came right in and started winning some nationals and um, was super competitive to where I was struggling a little bit more, but it kind of flip-flopped there. I don't know what year um, that happened, but uh, he kind of got sick with training or Epstein bar type thing or something, mononuclear. I don't know what he had, but it really hurt his performance and it was kind of bum, bummer for him. But yeah, so uh, big transitions every year all the way up to like you said, 90, it slowed down in 87, 86 when we went to production rule. Yeah. Um, then it became just kind of production bike with factory parts on it. Kind of like it is now today, you know, the same rules almost are in place and just simple things that, you know, make the bike better, but doesn't make it a, a, a huge separation that it was before from a factory to a production bike. And it took a few years. Um, you know, to get those kind of um, figured out. But our 500 was always good um, from the first time I raced it in 83, I think, at the GP um, Carlsbad. And till the day I finished, it pretty much felt like the same bike from the factory level to the production level. So um, that was, I mean, I don't know, you couldn't make it any faster or you didn't want it any faster. So uh, the bike just got to be a little bit better handling, and it was on Kawasaki. I think 
definitely probably was the best 500 out there. Um, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't say that about any other of our bikes. Uh, <laughs> maybe if Honda always had some, you know, badass bikes back in the day, Osho's bike and my Kawasaki 125 was good. Um, to say it was better than Honda, I could, I don't think I could say that, but definitely our 500, I feel was probably the better bike out there, which, which helped me for sure on, on riding that thing as good as I did. Absolutely, and like just give. I think it's kind of funny how uh, you'd only be maybe four or five years older than some of your competition. Looking at them, being like, "Oh man, we didn't have those kinds of bikes growing up because they they changed so much." Like kids coming off, uh, like say, like a guy like Scott Burnworth, who I think he's a couple of years younger than you, uh, coming up racing, uh, yeah. like just a little bit more modern bikes that almost kind of had a little bit of a leg up moving into uh, the, the pro classes in the, the mid eighties rather than uh, like, like you said, riding uh, like the um, really rudimentary uh, dirt bikes and, and doing so on um, all kinds of tr- tracks uh, throughout the seventies. I think it's pretty impressive just to see uh, how the evolution of the motorcycle and, and your, with your career and uh, by 84 um, under the tutelage of, uh, of Jeff Spencer, like I said, after 13, different series in six years you capture your first 125 outdoor title in a pretty spectacular fashion uh winning a lot of races that year um and, and basically really establishing yourself as the guy like uh, uh like maybe you can talk about it a little better than i can but uh, from all the news clippings that i've read old magazines that my dad has kept um you were really dominant that year, and uh, a lot of it came down to fitness. But also, uh, as, as you, like the Kawasaki, may not have had anything for the uh, or not, not been the total of the same level as the Honda. You've really made that thing sing, man. Yeah, it was a good bike. I mean, I was in great shape. So was Osho. I mean, we went one two the entire series season. There was nobody got first or second besides us. So um, we were on it, and I. He'd win the first moto a few times, and I'd always get the second moto. And um, he won two nationals that year, and I won a national a moto each time he won. He just happened to get that second moto that time instead, and um, got the overall, I believe, and Saddleback because I went and won two, and then I can't remember where the other one he beat me at. But um, oh, it was Atlanta. I won the first moto, and then I was leading the second moto and got I don't know, a bunch of dirt in my mouth on some berm and was choking to death or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He passed me. I remember passing out after it was super hot. And then, um, so yeah, we battled back and forth, um, um, man. But um, it was just uh, I was just kind of ready and mentally ready for it, and from the year before, and you know, it, it fell my way, and it, um, I maybe got in Johnny's head a little bit on a couple things, and um, it was just uh, a hard-fought battle the whole year, and I once. That was my first Supercross race I won that year in 84 yep. at Seattle. And then I think I won one more or two more that year. So, yeah, 84 kind of set me as, you know, in the media as, that you know, I've made it. And, you know, where am I going to go from here? And then, of course, the next year in 85, I won the Supercross and the 250 Outdoor. So um, that 80, you know, 3, 84, 85 were really good years in my career of just stepping up to where I was one of the guys you know that were talked about to win a championship every time I went out and um from there on till the end of my career you know I mean I I don't think I was expected to win supercross championships at 30 and you know 30 years old and maybe you know 90 or 91 but I still won the 500s and I still like second the year after that and I still got third 
the year after that and won a, uh, you know, a national two races from the end of my career. So I was still competitive and, um, it's just tough when, you know, like you said, like when I came in, we really didn't know triple jumps. We kind of, we raced into them, you know, once we got in, and then what happened once we were racing into them, the mini bike guys were, you know, we're doing stuff like that. So now they have, they're coming in way more prepared than what I came in, you know, as a mini bike guy. So, and plus I had to go in with the main guys. I didn't get, I didn't get a lights class. You had to jump right into the 250 class with all the champions. So it was really hard to, and super cross to, to just come in and be competitive because you've never done it and you're racing against guys that have been doing it since the, you know, conception of it. And now you get to, you know, now if you look right now, you know, these guys practice on their own tracks before they even race the lights class. So um, it was just a big learning curve more than, but every year it got later in my career, guys would come in, Matasevich and, you know, Bradshaw and all these guys that were learning things, um, bringing it into the supercross that we hadn't really thought of or done because, you know, um, they're just progressing in a little more higher rate than we are. Um, so it was challenging to step up to the plate to like, you know, wow, how'd that guy do that? You know, and where did he learn that? And then you'd have to kind of do that. And then it was like, wow, you know, just every year somebody would bring in a different way of racing or a different way of attacking a section or whatever it was. So for me, it was super challenging to step that level up and, and commit to what, you know, they were doing and, um, so, um, but now, you know, they, they know it from a young age cause they're shooting, they're riding it on super minis now, you know, so it's not, not as big a learning curve for those guys. No kidding. I can't imagine what, uh, what Jeff Ward's career would have been like if he maybe had, uh, like a, a Carson Mumford situation where, uh, he's got a complete compound out in the desert and, uh, with outdoor tracks and supercross tracks and, and just grooming you to, uh, to take on the professional ranks. Uh, not to say that you didn't do a fair bit of practicing yourself, but uh, that was on a completely different scenario. Um, you guys, just, it's a totally different era, right? Um, but you still were able to become yeah, well, extremely I mean, it's, successful. It's so, yeah, it's just so different. I mean, it's, it's, it was the same for everybody back then. You know, it's, like, yeah. it's not like I was deprived of having a supercross track and Myerskopf had one. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, now nowadays maybe it is because maybe you know these guys have a better facility than the next guy. But if you're at the top of your game, you're riding at some place, uh, you know, yeah, some tra- track that has a full-on legit built supercross track with guys that are fast. So um, you're not going to get you know pushed aside. Where we just didn't have that. We just had the, you know, even the guys that were the first supercross track really built. Uh, Kawasaki did it in 1992. It's on my father-in-law's property out in Corona. Kawasaki track's been at that same place since 1982 when we built it. It's still there. So that was like the first time where we built a track to practice on, otherwise just racing. Before that, it was just showing up at the track and learning kind of what they built, you know, whoever was that, you know, inventive to build something that was different than anybody's ever ridden. So you really couldn't practice it, you know, before and everybody was in the same boat you just kind of rode your own outdoor stuff and uh, yeah, I'm sure some guys had better riding you know I had Southern California where at the time you know you could just go in the hills and make your own track um it was behind Mission Viejo where I where I lived and 
we have one down the road and I could go to Saddleback or I could go, you know. So we had it pretty nice out here, but then there's guys back east that had their own sand tracks and, you know, had this and that. So that was kind of, that was kind of what, you know, went on back then. But, you know, now everybody's got the full groomed supercross track. So they're coming in with all the tricks done, all the, the jumps exactly what they're going to be like. And it took us a while to, to learn that and get that structure going to where, to what it is today really is practicing on your own supercross track. Well, there, there you go. Before we talk about uh, your last uh, championship in 90, I wanted to ask you about uh, um, learning how to skim whoops. That was a, uh, a skill that basically came in very late in your career. Uh, and for the most part, I got to imagine the first time you ever saw it done or saw anybody do it, um, you probably think of one of two things. A, that looked fast. And B, I'm going to have to learn how to do that. So how did that uh, sort of come about, um, and uh, what were some of the trial and errors? I mean, that, that, that's some that, those, that adversity I was talking yeah. about uh, throughout your career. That that was something that had to be done. Yeah, I think uh, the first times I think we ever saw that was over in France at Bercy. Um, they built some hoops, and I think it was Mickey Diamond that um, just blitzed through them. Like, um, and I got. I never got it down the whole night. I mean, I never could do it. Um, I don't know if it was my bike setup was too soft or, you know, maybe they figured something out or they just got lucky with maybe had stock suspension and it was too stiff and ours was softer from our factory stuff. I don't know. But um, I just remember trying to do it and I just could not get all the way through. And so I just had to, you know, make do with what I could do. But then, yeah, it, it came a little issue on some places, but they never built them good enough to where you could actually really skate across them that good. They always got cupped because they just didn't roll the tracks like they do today. Um, we had too many ruts to, uh, you know, skim them. So you, you might skim into them and then you start wheel tapping to get out or you'd wheel tap in. And then I remember Atlanta when I passed Ricky and Guy Cooper to win, it was kind of like that. It was kind of like a wheel tap into them and then at the end I got off the, the, the groove and kind of skimmed the inside ones you know to get past them out of the groove um, but I was never great at it and I don't think we ever set the bikes up for it because we had so many ruts and brake bumps and and stuff in the track that you couldn't run it that stiff to to get across them as good as you wanted to and then it would really hurt for the other parts of the track because our tracks just weren't as groomed um, as they are now where um they didn't stay together that well. I mean, we were down to the, the the plywood every week, you know, like probably half the corners on the track you're on plywood. Um, so it was just a little bit more different. But, yeah, just like I said, somebody always brought something into the table that you had to learn, you know, tapping the rear brake and dropping the front was one time. You know, but you, we always landed wheel high a lot and um, just certain things of, starting with, you know, holding your front brake, guys would do, you know, we usually never did that. So just little things I remember that it would come up, you know, throughout the career that you just kind of have to, you know, change up a little bit. Another rider brought in to the table that he was known for, but his style was anyway. But, um, yeah, hip hoops are, were never my best, but I just tried to minimize my time through them and make it up elsewhere. No kidding, and you were certainly able to do that with uh, the number of championships you were able to knock down. 
Um, and uh, probably not too many whoops uh, you encountered in in '90 uh, on the uh, the KX500 uh, battling the Osho and uh, and Jeff Stanton. Uh, walk me through your uh, your last professional championship. Uh, a guy who yourself was an absolute terror on the 500 machine for uh, a slight guy. That's probably maybe one of the things you're best known for is being uh, so dominant on that machine, despite uh, your your, uh, your stature. Uh, going through that championship, winning the races, and uh, ending up with the, the championship. That was a pretty impressive uh, feat for 1990. Uh, I know that's one. Of, that's one of the basically. Uh, I think that one basically. Basically, your um, that's that to me. That's kind of your Mona Lisa. That thing you really painted that one, and uh, it, it turned out to be an, an iconic series for you. Yeah, I was just I just liked the 500 probably since day one that I rode bigger bikes back when in the early 80s. The for the I think it was the what was it the 440 or something 420 Cowie had, and they had one of the four speed transmission, and I rode a couple GTs, and of course I did the donations. You know, in 83 on the 500, 80, you right. know, um, 84, 85, I rode 250. But, um, so I, I just was, I just liked the big bike. I did, it was just never my series I was going to do, you know, until we, they made the series where you could run 250 and 500 at 86. So, you know, I was competitive in those years and just, uh, was injured a lot at the time the 500 series came around. It seemed like, so I just never really got a good shot at, getting the championship with David and, and, and Ricky and um, so uh, just a little bit of struggles there and then once I did you know get healthy and in, in, in 89 and won that championship and then the next year you know 90 it just kind of rolled over and the bike was good I mean Jean-Michel Bale was racing um, he's really good on a 500 so it threw a lot of different mixes Mixing the in the results sometimes when Stanton was so solid, if you get bail in between them and pull some points and um, you know stuff like that, so it was uh, that was a good year for me. You know, both those years and even ninety one and ninety two were were good years on the five hundred. You know, not so good in Supercross or two fifty is not bad. But I did have some injuries in the two fifty and Supercross and. So I'd always try to repair myself and just be ready for the 500. You know, I'd have to throw in the towel a little bit on the Supercross and 250, just going, okay, it's not going to happen, and I need to. I can ride, but I'm just not going to get injured to so that I can be ready for the 500s. And even my last year, I had shoulder surgery um, in the middle of 250 nationals. Um, came back, rode a couple of nationals just so I could be ready for my last, you know, my farewell season on the 500 and. You know, I finished third in the championship. I won a race at Steel City, got second in my last one. So I was, you know, I think I only lost by 12 points. So yeah, I was competitive. <laughs> After shoulder surgery. You know, last year on the 500. Pardon? After shoulder surgery. Like, as a guy who's had shoulder surgery, that, I, I'm, that's more probably more impressive to me than it is to anybody. I've had both shoulders worked on. Not No easy task. And then uh, to win your second last race you ever compete in as a professional, that's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I was... Yeah, even my last race, like I could have won that day. It was it happened to be, um, I can't remember who it was. Stanton going for the championship or Kudrowski. I think Kudrowski or something. Kudrowski, but Bale yeah. let Stanton go by or something, and or uh, Bale let Kudrowski go. I don't know. I had like I think I had the overall until Bale let somebody go by that beat me on the overall because he wanted didn't want to help Stanton out. I don't remember. I can't remember what it, there was a little controversy going 
um, or Bale didn't even ride that day. I can't remember. It was way back when he was told to help somebody and he didn't even ride. I can't remember what it was, but that um, could have won the last one too. So um, not that it would have helped him win the championship. I think Kudowski still won it that year or Bale, one or the other. Um, so yeah, it was just a um, good bike for me. You know, I just good throttle control. The bike was good. Um, I just seemed like riding a, a bike with horsepower. So, um, I was always a smooth rider and always picked lines well. And that bike seems to just work better that way than the 250 did, where you could muscle around a little more like Ricky Johnson could and Stanton could. And I was still a little more smoother, which didn't pay as big a dividend as the 500 did when, when you rode that to where Stanton and Ricky tried to bulldog it a little more. And that's probably hurt them more. So it was just kind of perfect stars aligned when I, I would get on that bike. Fair enough, man. Well, you, you absolutely uh, uh, were a star all the way through your your professional career, right up to uh, literally just about winning your last race. Which there's not too many people can say that they basically went out uh, as a podium contender. A lot of guys uh, sort of uh, stick around long enough to see themselves uh, barely on the lead lap. To be completely honest, so there's not a lot of guys who can start to write their their swan song like that, and, and you were able to do it in spectacular fashion. When you look back at your uh, professional motocross career, uh, what are some of your favorite sort of uh, things to look back on? I know that you've got fans that probably come up to you on a weekly basis that want to talk about certain races and things that they remember. But uh, what is it that you that sticks out to you that, like, in your uh, your quiet time, you sort of look back on uh, most fondly? Um, I don't, for me, it's just like back when it first started, just kind of like. Um I don't know, just the feeling you, you got to go to track. There's certain things sometimes that um, just goes through your head. I mean, you could be anywhere, and um, it just reminds you of being at the racetrack with friends and um, just having a great time. And I, did, I didn't, at the early years, you know, I mean, you didn't feel the pressure so much, you know. Uh, you just loved racing, and I didn't know where it was going to take me. I mean, there was really no ground laid down it wasn't like there was 20 years of guys making a million dollars and racing motocross um there was some guys just going week to week that still had a job that were racing locals making money that which was i was doing you know just so you weren't thinking like i'm going to be this national number one champion for and make all this money and just keep going because really the sport hadn't even started yet super crowd i mean it was just kind of a just starting so who knows where it was going to go to where now you know where it's going it's still going to keep going so it was just a cool time back then I just remember of just like loving going to the races and um, with your friends and racing and washing your bike coming back home and that stuff just sticks in my mind more than really any wins you know or championships I mean yeah it was gratifying but I don't I don't get that feeling I, I don't know why but I just get more feelings of God, this reminds me of when, you know, so-and-so and I were just kicking back, you know, whether it's at a mountain bike race I was doing, you know. This was like when we were on our 125s at Saddleback, you know, just having fun and and having people around, you know. So um, those are the probably the probably the best things that, you know, I remember of my career. And, and I got that when I went with my kids, kind of the same thing. You know, you got that feeling of wasn't about how they did that day and stuff. It was more about the journey getting there and just enjoying it because I know once I got serious um, you know winning championships a lot of that fun goes away because I was a serious guy you know I mean I had to be 
doing what I needed to do. I just wasn't able to go take weekends off and and with my mentality feel like I was prepared for the next weekend. I had to put in the work. That was just my mindset, you know, so um which paid off because that's what you have to do. You know, you gotta be stronger than the next guy, but that just came natural to me. So yeah, a lot of uh the fun of it was probably taken away a little bit. Um but once your racing career is over, there's a long time after your race your racing career is over to have fun and enjoy life. You know, it just seems when you're that age, it seems like, you know, you don't look at the future, like how much more there is after motocross. You're just looking at like right now. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it's worth putting your head down for five, six years and getting what you getting the most out of it. Um, um, and then that way you don't look back on, God, I wish I would have rode more or, didn't go do this or do that and that's something i never did so but everybody's different you know so what works for me doesn't work for somebody else that won championships it's just uh what you what you can get done mentally if you can get done mentally without doing something anybody else is doing and still win then you know then that's that's your advantage so but mine worked for me Heck yeah, my friend. Didn't leave anything on the table. Uh, coming away with a ton of championships, a lot of race wins, and I, I imagine a boatload of memories to go along with it. Jeff Ward here on the Big MX Radio Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this sort of uh, trip down memory lane a little bit and uh, where I can sort of fanboy on you a little bit just because uh, although uh, your career is a little bit before uh, I was watching the sport uh, thanks to uh, the magazines that my dad kept over the, the 70s and 80s and, uh, and and thanks to Tony Blazer on uh, on YouTube, uh, definitely uh, I'm a huge fan of yours and uh, I hope that you enjoyed this and I hope that uh, you'll want to come yeah. on again sometime after uh, uh, you complete your mountain bike race this weekend or this evening uh, which I, I hope you're successful with as well Thanks. Yeah, no, I'd love to come back on. I got, I mean, motocross is just like one of the small parts. I mean, one of, one of my parts of my career because I did Indy yeah. cars for 10 years. And of course. I did off-road trucks and supermoto for like five, six years, the X Games, and then I did rally. So I've just done, I'm still going. You know, now I'm still <laughs> doing, so yeah, motor, motocross has seemed so long ago to me now. Like, it's almost like it didn't happen because the Indy cars have seemed more relevant because my kids grew up with me doing indie cars and everything, so it just seems like, you know, such a long time ago, but, um, still motorcycling is a big part of our life and enjoy watching it and admire the riders and how, how great they are and what they can do on the bikes. Cause I've done, you know, I've been there with what I could do on my bike and it's amazing what they do on these bikes. So it's, it's pretty cool, uh, what kind of athletes they are and, and enjoy doing that. So and I still keep track of, I mean, I just talked to Stanton last week and, I see Osho. Cool. He'll probably be out there tonight. I don't know if he's racing, but um, so yeah, I still keep in touch with with all the you know the guys that were you know the guys I hated at the the years I raced, <laughs> and now we're all great friends because basically you know we have a lot in common of what we went through and what we're going through after racing. So that so was good to keep in touch with those guys. No kidding, uh, getting together with the Osho, uh, going over some old memories and, and comparing aches and pains uh, that have been with you for about thirty years. Yeah, I think he's got more than me, though. He's just had a whole reconstructed knee surgery. And, yeah. Um, whole, whole knee replacement. and um, So he's back cycling again. and But he's like me, so competitive that, you know, just eats him up that he can't get out and give 100%, um, you know, be out there. But um, I think it's 
in the long run, it's going to be a lot better for him, and he'll be fine. So, um, but enjoy doing stuff with him and other guys I raced with at local events when we show up. And yeah, we have some good stories always, and most of them I don't remember until they bring them up. So it's always good for us to get together because it's hard to remember everything until somebody brings it up, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. So it's, it's cool. I couldn't imagine getting uh, getting maybe three or four of you in a, in a room together, give you guys some microphones, and just just like hit hit record for a couple hours. I can only imagine the stories that would get un- uncovered. Um, Jeff, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'll have to call you up again sometime to uh, to, to go over some more stories and, and maybe even talk about some of the some of the best sponsors you've had over the years and stuff like that. I know you've got a ton of great relationships within the sport, um, but I also know that you have a, a race to get ready for this afternoon and. Uh, but I really appreciate the time, my friend. Uh, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, anytime. Just give me a buzz. You got my number. So I'm more than happy to talk with you for more stories. Heck yeah, my friend. Well, you have yourself a great rest of your evening. Don't hang up just yet. But for podcast sake, we're going to cut things off yeah. right there. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Radio Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Maxima USA proven under the toughest conditions the collective experience access your dreams at thecollectivexp.com sickwix candles soy candles and wax melts for moto fans like you medterra cbd our cbd your health find out more at medterracbd.com